is going to be the same passage uh, that we did uh, last week. So if you were with us last week, we will read the same exact verses, I will preach the same exact sermon, and then we will go home. No, I'm joking. It will be the same verses, it will be an entirely different sermon. We're going to emphasize uh, the children here, as far as this sermon series being microeconomics, meaning uh, the small micro house, ekoi, and nomics is the rule or governance of the home. Microeconomics is what we're interested in here today. And we find it in two particular passages. One, Colossians uh, 2, 13. Turn your Bibles there. We'll flip over our screen behind me. Let us pray first. Father, Lord, we come before you, uh, before your face, before your word. Father, we profess our adoration to you as we sang, Lord. And I love that phrase, just praying it this morning before worship, to say, Lord, that you are our everything. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That you are everything. Father, we here profess and worship before your feet. And Lord, I feel as though when we sing a song like that around to the next chorus that we might mean it a little more and around to the next chorus that it would take another layer deeper to our souls. So Lord, let us do it once more. And in this prayer, profess, Lord, that you are our everything. And with that we profess, but also confess, Lord, that there are many times that you are not our everything. You are not the forefront of our mind. You are not the fire that burns our hearts. We are passionate about many things. And we do tend to make ourselves little idols and trinkets to worship. But Lord, here we confess our failure at this point. And we profess, Lord, as earnestly as we can mean this, that you are everything to us. You are before our health and our wealth. You are before our cars and our toys. Yes, Lord, even before what we look at today, our own family, our marriages or children, our social status and friends, our food and our comfort. Lord, we give everything to you. We know it has all come from your hand. And Lord, we pray that as we gather to worship from Sunday to Sunday, to bring our hearts and expose them before the light of your glorious presence, Father, we pray that you would have our worship ring true to that phrase in which we lift our voices in our hands and say, you are our everything. We love you. Lord Jesus Christ, now please give us your word that we might be well fed, that we may walk with you and speak with you all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. And so here is this passage in Colossians 2, 13, and we'll flip over to Colossians 3 again, speaking about the household. Apostle Paul writes to the church, and he says to them about Jesus, 
And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. He goes on to say, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is the center of it all, where we're told that Jesus nailed it to the cross, this record of debt that stood against us, and in that was his triumph. And though it wouldn't just simply be a spiritual thing, the letter continues as Paul addresses this church, predicated on everything he previously said, to move forward in his application in verse 18 of chapter 3. Therefore, because of everything that Jesus Christ is and has done, wives, submit to your husbands, he says, as is fitting to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And those are the categories in which we speak of as the Christian home. And uh, next week we will look at uh, one category that's foreign to us, which is this whole concept of slaves and bond servants, the Christian view of slavery, um, why we don't speak about it anymore, why it is all throughout the Bible. And when anyone would say, the Bible supports slavery, my hope pastorally is that you will be able to have an answer to say, not really. But that's for next week. Here we see in this the Christian home. The nails of Jesus Christ hold all things together. He is canceled, we're told, the record of our debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. And he did this by the way of nails. He nailed it to the cross, it says, as we read in Colossians. Nailing all of your guilt in one location. Think of that. That is metonym. It's, it's a language to say that when Jesus was pinned to the tree, so was all of your sin. Because it happened by way of covenant. That is, it happened by way of God's internal relations in his mind of considering Jesus to be the wrathful lamb of the covenant. That all of your sins were upon him. And that all of his righteous and good life fell upon you. But the union happened through nails. He put him there. And because of that, we're told that in that process... He is uniting the whole world again to his son. God's plan of redemption in Colossians particularly, throughout a lot of places in scripture and generally, is that God's plan of redemption can be spoken of as being unification. To reunite all things into his son, Jesus Christ. It says in Colossians 1.16, as we have seen before, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus on his normal day. That's just Jesus before he would even save the world. That's just Jesus being Jesus. He holds all things together. There is a unity to his power and authority that is innate. It's all say to himself. But then he goes on to say, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. He incarnated himself in this world, that through him he might reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or in heaven, by making peace of the blood that was on the cross. He goes on immediately to say that. So there is this idea of all creation being immediately and originally or a priori united to Jesus by virtue of his deity, his creation. But then that deity was clothed or wrapped up in flesh, came into this world, and was given a predicate in which he was possibly said to bleed. That, that his body was able to bleed. And, and that body was nailed to the cross. And the nailing of that body to the cross opened up a whole new vista or caveat, or a, an opening to God's plan of redemption that we see. Not only was he the original uniter of all creation, but he is uniting all creation by recreating, by redeeming it all. And that was the nature of his incarnation. That's why he had to come to the cross in such a way. And that would all be very well and good. But then the letter leaves us in this awkward situation of actually having to believe it and live it. It would have been nice if Paul just stopped it and said, Wow, that is really wonderful theology. That's really great philosophy. I like looking at the world that way. And then he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Well, that's inconvenient. Husbands, love your wives. And don't be harsh with them. If your knowledge of Christ does not apply or change your life, then you don't know Christ. There's no page in Scripture that doesn't immediately make it real and practical. Because Jesus is real. Other people like philosophy. We as Christians... Worship God incarnate and flesh and bones. Everything is real. The historical Christ. Therefore, our Christian homes are brought inside of this hegemony. The, 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 the overarching plan of God and redemption must be worked through the microcosm of our homes. Then he says, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Why? Because of everything he said that Jesus Christ is Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, he says, lest they become discouraged. It is micro. It is simple. It is discreet. It is small. This is God's plan for our lives. This is where it matters, in these little things. The micro-relations he speaks of between the husband and the wife are important. But here we see the micro-relations of between a parent and children. This is so important. And it is not. I... I am clear, I am so convinced, if there are a few things I'm convinced of, this is not emphasized in the Christian church. The importance of this, this verse being passed over, the reality of what, there's a question in the modern man almost asks, and it truly is a question. 
What are kids good for? And I mean that sincerely. I did a wedding last week with a friend of mine. He was being married and he professed faith in Christ and wanted a real Christian wedding. And I've known him from when we were young. And in, in, the, in the rehearsal and even throughout uh, the marriage ceremony, seeing a lot of old friends and people from my generation, people I graduated with in high school, almost none of them have children. That is a legitimate question. What are kids good for? That's a question many have already answered. And the answer is, not much. Because, well, I think we all grant it does tend to make life a little more complicated. So if you don't really know what they're good for, why would you go out and have children? And here, wrapped up in to our theology and God's plan and redemption for the world is this. And I hope to pull that out. Because Malachi makes it beautifully clear for us. This is, if you could find perhaps the simplest answer to the question, what are children good for? Malachi 2.15, the prophet speaks in God's wisdom and says, speaking of marriage, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union, the marriage union of man and wife? And what was the one God seeking in this marriage, that is? Godly offspring, Malachi says. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. That is, why? Malachi says, because God wants godly children to worship him. That's it. He doesn't want your children to be successful in life. He doesn't want your children to go to the best school. He wants them to be godly. He wants them to love the Lord. He wants them to worship Him. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. He wants children in the covenant, children that will be with Him in the new heavens and new earth, children that will truly be saved and godly and mature. That's why. And if your heart is not oriented to worshiping God this way, i.e. not a Christian home, it's a legitimate question in the modern world with all the comforts we have and con- contraception. You don't need a bunch of kids to plow your fields because you don't even have a field and you're not a farmer. Why would you have so many children? Because God should be worshipped. And if you don't have that answer, none of it really makes sense. God is seeking godly children And these godly children expressly come in the context of Colossians, this microeconomic law code that he gives at the end of the letter. These godly children come from a godly home. And it sounds simple and it's almost expected. But the underlying assumptions within our culture are so counterintuitive to that. Many would generally assume or ask the question, am I not obligated to just pay thousands of dollars to some university so that the priests of secular humanism, i.e. professors, can indoctrinate and inculcate in my children everything antithetical to Jesus Christ that they could be in debt for the next how many years of their life? And oh, we do this at the most intellectually pivotal point of their development. And only maybe like for four years straight. Or if they don't show up every time, there's consequences. Unlike if they don't come to church or hear the word of God regularly. There's no consequences. 
or financial involvement. If you say it like that, and you just tilt your head and look at the whole thing sideways, you say, oh, well, that explains a lot. Barna Research Group has done a survey on this and said that children who enter into college professing faith in Jesus Christ, 70% of them will deny the faith before they have graduated school. They will leave with little or no faith at all, and they usually will never return after graduation. 80% reared in the Christian home, put this stat in mind, 80% reared in the Christian home, doing this thing here, where the pastor who's a little disconnected from the generation of the children goes up and preaches the word, but then when their intellect is awakened, when they're able to actually grab some of the depths and the beauties and the abstract theology of Jesus Christ and what it means, they usually leave a community church, go into a four-year system in which they're in a whole subculture that's opposed to Christ. And the research shows that 80% reared in this are uh, disengaged by age 29 and not even involved in worshiping the Lord. So if we go back to Malachi, we say, why should we have children? So that they would be godly and love the Lord. And then as Christians, we say, well, why isn't that happening? Like, that's a pretty bad statistic, just to be honest. The reality of this all ties in to not understanding what the scriptures say about this part of the Christian home. That there is something to it. There are promises locked up inside of this relationship. I was watching um, uh, the, the, the movie Tangled uh, with uh, my daughter. And if you're, if you're thinking, well, it's too easy to critique uh, Disney because they're so um, tricky about what they're doing lately. Uh, they're really not, of course. Uh, but it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was the rendition of Rapunzel. And this really captures it, right? Um, the idea that it would be expected that children should rebel against their parents. And the image of it is Rapunzel in her tower. Brothers Grimm's story redone with all its digital remastery by Pixar. And she wants out of her tower. And what happens in the movie is she lets her hair down and gets out of her tower and is free because she's come of age. She's a young adult of sorts. And the next scene is her waffling or oscillating between extreme joy and guilt. Because she disobeyed her mother, who wanted Rapunzel locked away in this tower, and so she feels guilty. But then, when she came down from her tower, her feet hit the uh, fresh grass for the first time in her life, and it was amazing. And she stand in the river, and the cold, crisp water ran through her legs, and it was exhilarating. And she's experiencing life almost in a sense of freedom for the first time. And it says, particularly in the movie, to placate her conscience, it was good for you to rebel against your mother, to disobey her. It's, it's natural. It's what you should be doing. And of course, that's the subculture of everything in our American culture. Is this is almost expected. You should be doing exactly the opposite of what Colossians says is in obeying your parents. But the reverse of this, which is an image or a type of really what goes on in uh, children in the Christian home, is the reverse and the wisdom of how God's word comes and says, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they be discouraged. 
Do you see how that works? If we do not make our house laws accord with the law of our Lord, we will produce a terrible dichotomy in the minds of the children in which they will feel this awkward and difficult position of joy in freedom and also guilt for disobeying. That is, there is nothing good. You you feel with Rapunzel in the movie a vicarious kind of wishing her the best because she's not getting what she should have. She, she shouldn't be locked into a tower. She's in a microeconomy, a home law that is ungodly. She's being bound up with things that are not for her good. And so when she rebels, it feels good, but it feels bad. The whole idea of a Christian home is it is a Christian home. Everything said in the book of Colossians about the Lordship of Jesus Christ makes its way down to the little level in which parents are to be obeyed in such a way that they model in their home that any time a child should ask why, there's always the right to say, because I said so. But then, as they grow and they ask why, the conversation happens in which it is said, because of the Lord. Because of the Lord. Not because of me. I am under the Lord. You are under the Lord. We are under the Lord in this little home law system, this home microeconomy together. We're in the Lord's world. And so, when our particular laws do not match the laws of the Lord, there is a disconnect as they grow, and they see beauty and goodness that we have arbitrarily kept from them, and they resist in that, and with that, they throw the whole thing together and say, this is Christianity, when in reality, it's a misrepresentative Christianity in the home. And all it is more is just Rapunzel wanting out of the tower. And who can blame her? For it is just the laws of men. This is how important the Christian home is. Is that they would be in accord with the Lord of the law. The whole point of parenting is to connect the Lord and his law together to produce love in the heart of a child. To connect the Lord and his law together for them. Connect those synapses in their mind to produce love in their heart for the Lord and his law. So that when they grow up, They do not associate the Lord or His law with their parents. They associate the Lord and His law with a love for the Lord. Because Malachi says God is looking for nothing more than that. Children who are godly. Children who love the Lord because He is the Lord. And so parents' job, our job in the home is to be theologians. Our job is to be exegetes. To draw out from the world all the wisdom of God's word and connect that for them. So that they would own it. So that they would have it. This is our job. To be the theologians for these children. As Jesus has said in Luke 6. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone. When he is fully trained by him. Will be like his teacher. That's the goal. And so children must obey. And we'll see now why Paul would say it this way. Children must obey. Because of a natural thing. It teaches. See, this teaches everything about the Lord. We have to obey the Lord because of creation and providence. That is, He made you, so therefore He's due that honor. And He's providential over everything. Every meal you've ever had came from Him. And the clothes you wear are His. 
He's provided for you again and again. He's worthy of your honor. Do you see if that's modeled in the home, what that says about the Lord? For children are children by creation. They came from you. And providence, you provide for them for everything. Therefore, they should revert that honor back to you. And that should be a microcosm, a microeconomy of how the world really works. And if that is not demonstrated in the home, it is lying to them again and again and again so that they think the Lord is this way. They think that they are autonomous. They think they are free. But they are not. It has to be taught through that. But the motivation behind these commands to obey the ch- for children to obey is most beautifully, not just for the reality of natural law, what the way the world should work, but actually for the reality of special grace. And this is where we'll focus the rest. Yes, it would make sense in a good world, non-Christians alike, homes that are not following Jesus, it would just be good in general if children obeyed and parents were godly because of creation and providence. Sure. But this is where people miss. And this is what's so um, valuable for the church to see. That it is a relation that is wrapped up inside remarkable promises that God has locked into the whole order of history and his plan for redemption. And I believe actually why Paul would choose to end his letter in this kind of fashion. Because he knows what's going on here. He knows really where the power of the culture lies, where the power of the gospel to infiltrate the whole world lies, and it is in between these micro-relations. In the 20th century, we unlocked an atom and blew up cities. In the 21st century, it seems like we want to unlock the nuclear family, and the effects are even more dangerous. There's power between these relations. If you break down the marriage, if you break down the children-parent relation, it is more detrimental than what happened in Hiroshima. It affects everything. It ruins whole nations, not cities. All of human history is just a a footnote to the reality of taking away this order. And we are on the precipice of just doing that. In the same letter in Ephesians, uh, the same type of letter in Ephesians 6, Paul gives the same command but expands and we use it here. He says this particularly, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for it is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. What is that promise? That may it go well with you, and that you live long in the land. You need to see why he would say that, and how remarkable that is. The first promise of this type is with Abraham and his household, that he would dwell in the land that he had a covenant between God, and it says particularly in 17.7 of Genesis, his descendants, you and your descendants after you, as their generations, generations, children, for an everlasting covenant, to be your God, I promise, you and your descendants after you, and to give you and your descendants after you. Do you see? And descendants, give you and your descendants after you, this land. Referring to Canaan, which is modern day Israel. That's the promise to Abraham. It extends to Moses. Into the Ten Commandments, which Paul quotes, we just read, to the Ephesians, obey because of this. He cites Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land and the Lord, that the Lord is giving you. 
Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Commandments thousands of years ago, Jewish people going into the promised land of Canaan, which is Israel today. Okay, that's the context of that commandment. The fifth commandment refers to that. And nothing more, nothing less. That's what it's about. They break the commandments. They fail. God makes a new set of commandments in Exodus 34. And he introduces himself this way. Again, he reiterates, this is what I'm trying to do with you. If you would listen, if you would obey me. He says, the Lord, the Lord. He introduces himself so marvelously. He says, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping the steadfast love to a thousand generations. And forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin to all those. And will by no means kill, uh, uh, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, that relation, fathers upon the children, to the third and the fourth generation. So, God says, I'm going to make ten commandments. The fifth one's going to say this, honor your father and mother so that you'll live in this land in Israel. Okay. Golden calf, they worship it. They do a bunch of sexual things to each other. It's like, okay, um, Moses breaks the, the Ten Commandments. And then God reevaluates says, I'm going to try again. And then you go back to Exodus 34, and he gives them the Ten Commandments again. But this time he prefaces it by saying, I am gracious. And he demonstrates it by way of generation, children. He says, I will be gracious up to the thousandth generation, but I will only visit the iniquity upon the fathers to the children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you see how he couches his commandments in generational language? He's saying, I really want this to work. So work with me. And I will lean real heavy on the grace side. And if you have really bad fathers, and they're not faithful to covenant, and they don't train up their children in the covenant, even down to the third and the fourth generation, but after the fourth generation, I'm going to keep trying again with you. I really want godly children. I'll be merciful to the thousandth generation with them. I will work it out, but you've got to work with me. Trust me and get in this covenant. That's how God expresses his plan for Israel to save the world. And he really likes working through generations and children. Up to the thousandth. A thousandth to a ratio of three and four. Now, read Ephesians 6 once more where Paul says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. It's the first of the Ten Commandments with a promise. And he reinterprets it and says, That it may go well with you and you live long in the land. But that commandment was given to Israel to inherit the land of Israel. And he takes it and gives it to the Ephesians who are living in the Gentile city of Ephesus. There it is. This is how the church works. And if we don't understand this is how God is intending to bring godly children into the world, we miss the primary highway the highway of the, the means of grace of God upon a generation works this way. That he would take that and say, no, no, no. It wasn't just about the land of Israel. He speaks to Gentiles in Ephesus and says, you need to obey your parents so that you can inherit the city of Ephesus. 
It is global. It is around the whole world that all the nations and all the prophecies of Isaiah where he says, I want the knowledge of me to be like the waters that cover the earth. I want everyone in the whole world to lift up, as Paul says, holy hands in prayer to the Lord. I want godly offspring. I was only starting with Israel and now I'm working through Ephesus and here is the kicker. That means this all matters. We're not waiting for some just temple to start up in Jerusalem. Get it together here in Harrison City. It matters. It matters. He wants godly children. He wants us to inherit this land as well. And that only happens through generations of faithful children who are brought up in the covenant of the Lord. That's why in Romans 4, 13, Paul says that he promises, he speaks of the promise given to Abraham that his offspring, his children, should be heirs, and he says, heirs of the world. The promise was to take over the world, not just Israel. Look up yourself, Romans 4, 13. Without thinking that way, of course, there's no answer. What are children good for? If you can live your best life now, why not? Use all your money for yourself. Do everything you want to do. But if we're here to glorify God and worship Him, this is it. This is what He wants. How could we have a godly anything? Many sincere Christians think we need a godly nation. We need godly companies or uh, godly government bureaucracies. What if they were filled with godly people? Well, that only works with godly people. And godly people only come from godly children. So, yes. There, see, see how it, it, it's almost not intuitive to our modern mind. We need to pray for God to bring some great big revival. How about we just get serious with the first things he told us to do? To raise godly children. To actually find these promises and bring them into all full sincerity. See, the, the problem, there are many big problems in the world that, that we cannot control. This is how it really equates with micro and macroeconomics. I can't control the markets in China. That, I, there's nothing, that's irrelevant to me. Right? And, and, and the spiritual milieu of our nation, the, the lack of the love and fervor for the Lord, that, that we, we conservative Christians are always saying, oh, that's terrible. Like, we really wish we could bring, bring a Let's have a revival and reformation. We really need a reformation. Yes, but, but why don't we actually just start controlling the things we can control? See, like, if, if, you, if you're unemployed... And you have a large mortgage and no savings. That's called a microeconomic crisis. But it's not a macroeconomic crisis. It's a crisis that can be controlled. It's a crisis that can actually be dealt with. You can fix things within your checkbook and budget. And the same thing for the Christian home. There might be, let's say, a spiritual problem in, in, in a need for godliness in our nation, a need for revival and reformation. Well, you really can't do that. Apart from God doing remarkable work as he's done in many of the great awakenings before. What you can control is what he's given you to control. And we should first off consider being faithful with the little that he gives us, as he says in Matthew 25. So that he might find us to be faithful to give us more as Christians to see revival and reformation in this world. But it starts at the micro level. Fathers leading their families in family worship. Proactive, 
bringing scripture, digesting it in very small bite-sized pieces to age-appropriate discussion, wrapped up in prayer regularly, every day, if not every other day, whatever time you can find, but sticking to it and doing it well. That, that is the beginning of actually building something for the Lord. Deuteronomy 6 is the model. The words I command to you, you shall have them on your heart. Your children know if they're on your heart or not on your heart. If this is just a ritual, you really believe this. These words are on your heart. Teach them diligently, diligently to your children. Talk of them when they are sitting at the house, walking by the way, when they lie down and when they rise up. All of life within this microcosm, this microeconomy of the Christian home is filled with the Word of God, inculcating the Word of God in them, that they would grow to become godly. And it's not as though we're twisting God's arm. It's not as though we're trying to uh, say we can make salvation, like our children could just follow the Lord. No, but what we call these are as means of grace. Availing ourselves of the means of grace. We do not bring the grace of God upon the heart. But there are many means in which that grace is poured out in great measure. And without availing ourselves of those means of grace, what does any of this actually mean if we speak about a need for a revival or a reformation? Many Reformed Christians are serious about these things, wanting to see a reformation. But without a reformation in our lives and the homes, it's irrelevant. Proverbs 22, 6 says, To train up a child in the way he will not depart from it. It's a proverb, it's not a law, it doesn't apply all the time, but it's a principle that there is something in that to train up a child in the way and he will not depart from it. Psalm 103 says, Your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear you and your righteousness to children's children, to those who keep your covenant. That is, if children can learn to obey, that is in the context of obeying within the Christian home, what Colossians is speaking about, they will learn of the covenant and they will have to make a decision to be in the covenant. But that promise in Psalm 103 is that that righteousness extends from everlasting to everlasting, from children to children. Laying hold of those promises is essential. And the whole covenant relation of the husband being the covenant head of the home, leading in this, is essential as well. So, all that can sound pretty heavy. Closing with this is the reality to know that parenting is like praying. You can always do more of it, and you can always do it better. No parents really lack for an opportunity of feeling guilty or lacking in this way. The point is to see how this all is related to Jesus Christ. We in our, our nation's economy have this thing called a federal reserve. Uh, and the word federal means covenantal. Unfortunately, it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's really a private entity. It's not part of our federal government. They back up all of our money. But it's really not backed up by anything and they just kind of create money. In a Christian home, we need to see that there really is a federal reserve. There's a covenantal reserve. If your children are older and they've walked away from the faith, there's a danger of despair. But there need not be. 
this Federal Reserve. God made us alive together with him and has forgiven us all our trespasses and canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. Our Federal Reserve buys treasury bonds with money they just make up. We call those bonds or debt, maybe sin. The only thing that keeps the Christian family intact is this. That there is not just the children under the covenantal protection of the parents and the wife under the covenantal protection of her husband, but the husband himself, and I need to hear that, is under the covenantal protection, the whole thing of Jesus Christ. That there is a federal head. There is a federal reserve of merit and mercy and grace. He has canceled all the record of our debt. All the bonds that we cannot cash. He has canceled them all by nailing it to the cross. So if and when, and most definitely when, there is breakdown in the family, there is a place to go. If the children have fallen away, there is a place to go. There is merit to have. There is money in the bank. If you have no collateral with your children getting older, and they don't want to have you speaking into their life like you once could, maybe you can't write a social check anymore. You haven't invested enough in with them so the back end they won't listen to you anymore. There is a Federal Reserve to fix that. There's more money in the bank by falling on your knees as a parent before them and submitting yourself to the Word of God and the Lord of God demonstrated before them, I have failed you, my son. I have failed you, my daughter. I need to repent. I need forgiveness. I need Jesus Christ. See, there's a place we go where all that can be fixed. There's a place we go in which the breakdown of the family can find solution. There is a storehouse of money that is not just blank checks written for inflation. They are backed by the blood of Jesus. There's real value. There is a real debt that can be paid within the home. That has to be done. That has to be seen in the home. That all forgiveness and unity can be maintained. And those who have small children, now of course is the time. Because you can invest in them. You can put money down in them. Social collateral, so to speak. The economics of the home. Invest in them. Invest in them. Invest in them. So when they are older, when they have their autonomy, they have so much of your invested money in their heart, your invested time and tears and prayers and conversations in the car about sex and conversations about everything under the sun that they know they can come to you with anything and there is so much stored up in there you can write any check you want with them. You can come up to them at any point and say, I don't think you should be doing that. Here's why. They'll hear you because it has been invested. There is an economic law at play. And children who are getting older... The greatest presumption of all these promises is assuming just because you are in this covenant in some way that you really are. Pushing, particularly as this communicants class, to make a profession of faith in Christ as young adults. This is um, the relation of the economy within us as families in the house of God. Father God, we pray, Lord, for godly children. Lord, we understand what it is that you are about with children and godly families and covenant unity. Lord, we thank you that we have a covering in your Son. That none of us stands on our own. That we have a reserve that cancels all of our debt. Father, we pray.
that you would create godly, mature families within us as a church. Lord, we pray that we would learn your ways to meditate upon your word. Lord, we pray that we would have children who grow to be godly young men and women, mature with their own mind and their own theology and their own strength and relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask you to do this not because we can, because you promised and you provided your spirit. And we ask you, Lord, to actualize that. We ask you to be good on these promises, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.